Reading this morning from Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, beginning at verse 9. And as Jesus passed on from there, He saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office. And He said to him, Follow Me. And He rose and followed Him. And it happened that as He was reclining at table in the house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and joined Jesus and His disciples at the table. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to His disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax gatherers and sinners? But when He heard this, He said, It is not those who were healthy who need a physician, but those who are ill. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Dear Father, we ask You to give us today and each day the compassion for the lost that reflects the compassion that we have been shown by You in Jesus Christ. We ask You to open our hearts to see how that compassion works itself out in our lives toward all who so desperately need it. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Next week we're going to be starting a series on Galatians, but today we're wrapping up our brief series, three-part series called Being Overcomers. Now I chose that series title because there is so much more at issue here than the church's response to a Supreme Court decision about same-sex marriage. That's the lightning rod issue of the day. But it's very important that we understand what the real root issues are that we as the body of Christ need to be addressing. God wants us to get the fact that He did not leave us on this earth after saving us so that we could fix a godless culture or even so that we could respond to a godless culture. He left us here as His image bearers and agents so that we would continue to do what Jesus did when He was here. So that we would do what He commissioned us to do. To seek and save the lost. To spread His kingdom over all the earth. And to make men and women Christ followers. But we certainly need to understand how to fulfill that mission in the midst of the cultural context in which we find ourselves. And that context includes the widespread belief, even among professing Christians, that every man and woman is master over his or her own sexuality. That we are compelled to follow our own hearts and desires. And that we are absolutely compelled to follow our own genetic predisposition. We have to be who we were born to be. That a loving God would never require a man or a woman to deny his own sexual longings. Because that would consign a person to a life that is robbed of life itself. In the video message that we saw last week, Sam Albury gave us God's clear answer from Scripture to address those assertions. If you weren't here, I strongly, strongly recommend that you go to our website to the sermons link, communitybible.org, and listen to that message. We actually have both the video and the audio available. Even if you were here last week, I'd, I'd urge you to listen to it again because the content that he presented is unusual and it's very powerful and important. As Sam made crystal clear, God's word to same-sex attracted believers is a good word. It's a difficult and often frustrating path. It's a path that involves denying self, taking up the cross of Christ daily, and following Him as true discipleship always does in all aspects of life. But that path is the very best and the most richly blessed path imaginable. That is the reality that we get to share with those who don't yet know that God's Word to them is a good Word. Our objective this morning 
is to stir you up, and me too, to apply that good word in real-life relationships with people don't, that don't know it's good. How do we actually live this out? How do we become useful to God to minister in real ways to those who are struggling daily with crippling confusion, with anger toward those who treat them as pariahs, and often with intense self-loathing because they cannot seem to be who everyone expects them to be. And on the other end of the spectrum, how do we become useful to God to minister in real ways to those who see nothing at all wrong with the homosexual lifestyle, who confidently declare that we Christians are on the wrong side of history and that we're the enemies of everything that's loving? We need to understand how God would have us reach out to people on both poles of that spectrum, both the strugglers and the militants and everyone in between, because they all need Jesus just as much as we do. And we're the ones who are here to show Him to them. We're going to look at three parts to that assignment. What we need to know, what we need to do, and what will happen if we do what we're supposed to do. First, there are a few things we need to know that we may not have made sufficiently clear thus far in this series. Things that God's Word declares very straightforwardly, but that we as believers tend to get wrong when, it, when this particular issue raises its presence. Same-sex attraction and homosexuality. The first of those things that we often get wrong on this issue is that sin is sin and temptation isn't. Is it sin for a Christian man to experience sexual temptation? Well, if it were, that would make Jesus a sinner and it would make the Bible a lie. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, just wait a minute here. I know Jesus experienced temptation, but He certainly never experienced sexual temptation. Oh, really? Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, because that's true, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If I asked everyone here from teenagers and upward in age to write down the top three temptations that you experience, I would hazard to guess that sexual temptation would be on every one of those lists. It would certainly be on mine. Since the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, by what bizarre method of interpretation would we conclude that he wasn't tempted sexually? Such an interpretation would make the words in Hebrews 4 meaningless. The certainty that Jesus did experience sexual temptation and never fell to it, never sinned, is exactly what draws all who struggle with sexual temptation to come to His throne of grace, knowing that there we will receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When I was younger than most of you here, including most of those seated right here, I was a new believer. And I would come to God's throne of grace and I would say, Lord, in my times of weakness, protect me based on the prayers that I have offered up in times of strength. And He did. This is a real promise. Alright, so it is not sin for a Christian man to experience sexual temptation. But what if the object of a man's temptation is another man? Is that temptation sin? Some will point to Romans 1 and say, yes it is. They will rightly note that the act of homosexual sex that is very explicitly condemned in that passage flows from degrading passions and a depraved mind. 
to which God gave men over because all mankind had exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. It is depraved and degrading passions and thoughts that lead to depraved and degrading acts. That progression is clearly laid out right there in Romans 1. But none of what is declared in Romans 1 or any other passage equates the temptation to sin with sin itself. Even if the line between those two is sometimes hard for us to identify. Romans 1 presents the downward spiral of sin from start to finish. And it indicts all of us as prideful, willing participants in the entire progression of sin that begins with refusal to honor God as God or to give thanks. The whole of Romans 1.18 to 3.20 is about the universality of sin and the universal condemnation of every human being apart from Christ. It is not about the distinction between temptation and sin. It's the wrong passage for that. But we know from many other passages that that distinction is real. And we know that Jesus Himself was tempted, but never sinned. We need to get this right. Because when we don't, we cause very great harm to people who struggle just as we do with the temptation to do ungodly things. Last week, Sam Albury pointed out that we who belong to Christ have been often accused by the culture of having blood on our hands because the constraints that we impose on people in the realm of sexuality are simply too large a burden and that they lead to mental illness and even suicide. Sam presented a compelling case from God's Word that declares that to be a false accusation entirely. One of the most foundational truths in God's Word from cover to cover is that God promises unimaginable blessing to all who humbly submit to His will and honor Him. So we don't have to apologize. We never have to apologize, beloved, for pointing out God's terms for our sexuality or His terms for anything else. There is a safe harbor here from God. If we are passing on God's own declarations about sin and righteousness, and if we're doing so with humility and with compassion for the lost, there is no chance that we will be threatening another person's mental, emotional, or physical well-being. It will be exactly the opposite. We will be we will be setting before them the path of blessing. But here's where I believe the church does have blood on its hands. And I firmly believe we need to get this right and we need to get it right right now. When we treat same-sex attraction as sin, we are placing a burden on people that does not come from God, a burden that is too great for them to bear. I'll share a scenario that I have experienced personally. Many years ago, when I was a brand new believer, a young brother in Christ who was coming to the same home Bible study in which I got saved came to me and a couple of other guys. And he confided in us that as much as he would like to, he could not muster up attraction to girls. And it was very clear that he struggled as mightily with sexual attraction toward boys as I did toward girls at that point. But the whole reason he came to me was because he was resisting that temptation and it wasn't easy. If I had told that young man that the temptation he experienced daily was sin, even if he steadfastly resisted it and never acted on it, I would have removed every reason for him to persevere in that struggle. I would have placed an impossible burden on him that did not come from God. When 80% of unmarried professing Christian men and women between the ages of 18 and 29 have had sex, anyone who takes the approach that that young man did should be praised for fighting a worthy fight, not demonized for even being in that fight. Temptation is not sin. 
On the night before His crucifixion, Jesus desired earnestly to set aside the cup of suffering and shame and abandonment that His Father had assigned to Him from before the foundations of the world. But the earnest desire that prompted Him to cry out to His Father to take that cup from Him was not sin. He did not act on it. In the same breath in which He implored His Father to remove that cup from Him, He said, yet not My will, but Thy will be done. And that submission to His Father's will is what determined His actions. The temptation to place His own immediate well-being over His Father's revealed will never got to first base. Temptation did not turn into sin. Attraction to something that God forbids is not sin. When we call it sin, we place impossible burdens on people that don't come from God. First thing we need to know is that sin is sin and temptation isn't. The second thing we need to know if we're going to be useful to God and ministering to people struggling in this area is that being born this way is utterly irrelevant. We're fighting the wrong battle here. Beloved, as Sam Albury pointed out so succinctly, if God is the one who gets to decide who's straight and who's not, the reality is that none of us is straight. We are all skewed, to use his word. How many men in this room were born with the predisposition to be sexually faithful to one woman for life? I'm glad I don't see any hands. Let me make the question more general. How many human beings do you know who were born with the predisposition to do godly things? Romans 3 verses 9 through 18 answers that question as forcefully as it can be answered. There is none righteous, not one. There is none who seeks after God. There is no one who is good, not even one. So the answer to the question is zero unless you count Jesus. Does knowing what we are prone to do tell us what we must do? Spend some time with any two-year-old and you'll have your answer. Romans 5 tells us that we are all born in the likeness of the first Adam, sinful and cursed until we receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness that comes only through the last Adam, Jesus Christ. The only relevance to knowing how we were born, is that that knowledge leaves us all in need of the same Savior. So brothers and sisters, let's lead with that whenever that issue is raised. And let's do away with all the speculative and pointless dodgeball over who among us was born with the least wretched predispositions. Things we need to know To be useful to God and ministering to those struggling in this area, we need to know that sin is sin sin and temptation isn't. We need to know that being born this way is utterly irrelevant. And we need to know that many are called to sexual abstinence. It's not all that rare in God's design. Many are called to sexual abstinence, at least for a time. There are a whole bunch of you in this room that are called to sexual abstinence. Genesis 1 and 2 and Matthew 19 make it crystal clear that God designed sex for the one flesh union between one man and one woman for life. Period. The only God-honoring course of action that Jesus presented for those who were not in that exclusive union is celibacy. At the very end of that passage in Matthew 19, Jesus told His disciples that there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And He said, He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. In other words, this isn't isn't easy to accept. But it must be accepted. Now considering how consistently Jesus focused on internals instead of externals, on the heart instead of the external behavior or manifestation, I firmly believe that when he said there are men who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven, he wasn't talking about men who had had surgery. He was talking about men and women who chose to be celibate 
because it served the kingdom of God. I believe Jesus was the preeminent example of just such a person. And there have been many believers who have followed in His footsteps in that regard ever since. Who is called by God to practice sexual abstinence? Celibacy? Well, first, those who choose not to marry. Now, I know that that sounds like an impossible category to some people. (laughs) But there are some who choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of God. God designed sex for marriage. A believer who chooses not to marry chooses not to do something else. And that is not to have sex. 1 Corinthians 7 presents that as an admirable choice with many advantages for ministry, not as some kind of weird aberration. Second category, those who don't marry because they aren't physically attracted to the opposite sex. Now for some who experience same-sex attraction, that absence of attraction to the opposite sex seems to be unchangeable. Sam Albury would attest to that from his personal experience. There's a man named Christopher Yuan who you'll find on Gospel Coalition site. Very knowledgeable of the Word. Excellent teacher. He is unmarried and he has no attraction to women. So he plans to stay unmarried unless God changes that. For others, attraction to the opposite sex grows over time as they walk consistently with the Lord. That's Rosaria Butterfield's testimony. But that's not to say that such a change is guaranteed to those who follow Christ. Another category of person who is called to celibacy is a married person whose spouse won't have sex. I hate to tell you, but that's a fairly common occurrence. If you do much counseling, you run into that a lot. If your spouse won't have sex with you, you don't get to force the issue and you don't get to have sex with somebody else. You're called to celibacy and God will bless that submission and obedience. Married person whose spouse can't have sex. Spouse has become ill, very ill, or is an invalid, or is comatose. In short, there are quite a few categories, there are quite a few people who don't get to have sex, including all those who will be married someday and aren't yet. All of them. In short, everyone who isn't married and some who are. We who are part of the family of God, the household of God, are called to be family to those who don't have the experience of marriage or sex because fidelity to Christ demands that of them. Those brothers and sisters don't need our pity. They don't need our sympathy. They don't need our matchmaking skills. They haven't been ripped off by God. What they need, beloved, is they need us. They need to know that our cell phones and our houses and our loving arms are open and available to them just as they are to our own mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and children. They need to know that they are our mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and children in the household of God. That's what God says. One more thing that I believe we need to know is that there is what is the real cure for sexual sin. This is really, really important. In the final analysis, the cure for sexual sin is not a greater resolve not to sin. It is not disciplined abstinence. Both of those are exceedingly useful in the hands of God, but neither, neither will put our affection for sin behind us. In Matthew 12, verses 43 to 45, Jesus told of a demon an unclean spirit that went out from a man and wandered around looking for rest. Finding no place to rest, that spirit returned to its previous house, that man, and found it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. The heart of that man had been cleared out of all demonic presence 
but it was also ready for occupancy. So that demon went and gathered up seven other demons more wicked than itself. And they all came up and took up residence in that man. And Jesus said the last state of that man was was far worse than the first. That is what happens if we treat God's call to resist sin as His whole solution to sin. The cure for sexual sin is the same as the cure for all sin. It is the life-changing, heart-filling power of a far better affection. It is love for God that pushes away our affection for sin. That's why Jesus said that the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commandments fulfill every other commandment of God, including the commandment to set aside sexual sin. Self and sin are pushed out the door because there is no room for either in a heart fully occupied with the love of God. The real cure for sexual sin as for all sin is love for our Savior and Redeemer and Master. And the part that you and I get to play in ushering another human being into that transforming love is simply to show that person who our Savior and Redeemer and Master is and how worthy He is of our love. It's all about a person. It's all about the most love-worthy person any person will ever come to know. We are here to introduce others to Him. And that's a glorious assignment. Alright, we've talked about what we need to know. Let's talk a little bit about what we need to do. First, we must go where the need is. And my subtitle for this little section is Being Ken Smith. Everybody's saying, who's Ken Smith? In her powerful book, Openness Unhindered, that I told you about a couple of weeks ago, Rosaria Butterfield traces the amazing journey by which God brought her from darkness to light. She was a liberal's liberal, a Syracuse University English professor who believed that air conditioning was a capitalist, consumerist evil. She was a lesbian and a highly vocal advocate of the LGBT cause. After she had written a scathing article blasting Christians for their position on that issue, she got a bunch of even more scathing responses from Christians, including some pastors, and some of them were vehement and vicious in their responses. But there was one response that she got that was very different. It was from a pastor named Ken Smith. He asked if she would come over to his house for dinner with him and his wife. And she accepted. She was on a personal crusade at that point to create an airtight case against the position of evangelical Christians on the issue of homosexuality. To expose Christians as unloving, hate-mongering idiots. She knew that in order to make that case with integrity, she'd have to become familiar with the book from which Christians supposedly derived their unreasonable and loving conviction regarding homosexuality. Ken seemed to be willing to act as a sounding board on the other side of that debate, and he also seemed like he would be a lot more pleasant in doing so than some of the other people that she had come up against. So she had dinner with him. She spent the next two years reading the Bible over and over all of it. There are some here who haven't done that. And discussing what was in it with Ken and his wife over many dinners. God used the willingness of that dear man to put himself in direct relationship with this rather militant, unbelieving woman. He used Ken Smith's loving and gentle spirit (laughs) as a as a super sharp instrument to pierce that woman's heart and draw her to himself. 
If Ken had handled that opportunity the same way many other Christians have by trading insults with Rosaria from a safe distance, he would have been of no use to God in her life. Instead, Ken showed her genuine compassion and love on behalf of the one who had shown him genuine compassion and love. He put himself face to face with someone who considered him and everyone like him to be fools and hate mongers. And instead of trading even a single insult with her, he loved her. He showed her hospitality and kindness and he talked to her about what God had to say in His Word about His Son. The Holy Spirit did all the heavy lifting, all the convicting, and all the convincing. That's what God calls us to do, beloved. We have to go where sinners are. We have to get face to face with them. And we have to stay there for a long time. And we have to do so with the commitment to love those sinners as Christ loved these sinners. Showing great forbearance and kindness every step of the way. Will you pray and ask God to show you where such needs are and to soften your heart that you might go and remain there? To be in real personal relationships with people whose lives make you deeply uncomfortable and whose beliefs make you crazy. What we must do is we must go where the need is. We need to be Ken Smiths. Secondly, we must be compassionate and proclaim Jesus Christ. We must be compassionate and proclaim Jesus Christ. Anytime it's one of those to the exclusion of the other, it's wrong. Titus 2 says that our lives are supposed to adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior in every respect. But there is a very strong momentum in Christian circles, especially in the younger component of those Christian circles, to replace doctrine with adornment. That will not do. Neither will the other extreme. Proclaiming the truth and, and having lives that don't back it up. God was using two things simultaneously to break and remake Rosaria Butterfield. The doctrine of God our Savior and the adornment of that doctrine through a godly man. It was not one or the other. It was always both. During her intensive two-year interaction with both the Scriptures themselves and with the man that God had graciously provided to show her what a life submitted to the Scriptures looked like, God whittled away at her steadfast conviction that the Bible was just another religious book contrived by narrow-minded men. I want to read you some of Rosaria's own words, and I have had trouble even reading these to myself, so please bear with me. I don't want to distract you because I can't compose myself. But this stuff is powerful. I'm picking a few quotes out. out of their, I'm not explaining the context because I'm going to move through pieces of a whole chapter. So I strongly encourage you to get the book, read the whole account. You'll be glad you did. She writes, I tried to toss the Bible and its teachings into the trash. I really tried. But Ken encouraged me to keep reading. I trusted him, so I did. As I was reading and discussing these things with him, he pointed out to me that Jesus is the Word made flesh and that knowing Jesus demands embracing the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of someone's imagination. The whole Bible, even the places that took my life captive, after years and years of this, something happened. The Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. She describes the day that she came to faith in Jesus as her Savior and Master like this. She was sitting in Ken's church and the congregation was singing a song from Psalm 119. And one of the lines in that song was, This is mine because forever all thy precepts I, I preserve. And now I'm quoting her. Two 
weight-bearing retaining walls collapsed in my mind. The first wall came crashing down because I had just sung condemnation unto myself. This Bible was not mine. I had scorned it and cursed it and despised it. I was not in Christ and therefore could not possibly keep these precepts, God's law, not in word, heart change, or deed. Here was the shattering of the second law. I had read the Bible many times through, and I saw for myself that it had a holy author. I saw for myself that it was a canonized collection of 66 books with a unified biblical revelation. I heard for myself that when the words, this is mine, came out of my mouth in congregational singing, I was attesting to this one simple truth that the line of communication that God ordained for His people required this wrestling with Scripture and that I truly wanted both to hear God's voice breathed in my life and I wanted God to hear my pleas. The fog burned away. The whole Bible, each jot and tittle, was my open highway to God. My hands let go of the wheel of self-invention. I came to Jesus alone, open-handed and naked. I had no dignity upon which to stand. As an advocate for peace and social justice, I thought that I was on the side of kindness, integrity, and care. It was thus a crushing revelation to discover that it was Jesus that I had been persecuting the whole time. Not just some historical figure named Jesus, but my Jesus. My prophet, my priest, my king, my savior, my redeemer, my friend. That Jesus. That beautiful, powerful testimony of the Holy Spirit's work to bring this dear woman to life. And Jesus Christ points to the same two indispensable influences that Paul talked about in his letter to Titus. The doctrine of God our Savior that is found only in His written Word, the Bible. And the adornment of that marvelous truth that is found in the lives of God's redeemed Christ followers. It must always be both that we set, beside, that we set before lost sinners. And I'm not talking about a timetable. I'm not saying we have to get the whole of the Bible's teaching about Jesus Christ in front of a person or even the bare minimum of that teaching in front of a person the first time we sit down and have coffee with them. What I'm talking about, what God is talking about, is a package deal that can't be divided up. The more cerebral and generally older believers among us must stop thinking and acting as if the proclamation of God's Word is all that is required of us. And the more relational and generally younger believers among us must stop thinking and acting as if loving and compassionate behavior towards sinners is all that God requires of us. What is required of us, beloved, is both the doctrine of God our Savior and the adornment of that doctrine by loving, compassionate, courageous, sacrificial lives. When people receive your compassion but flatly reject your proclamation of Christ, move on. In Matthew 10, the first time Jesus sent out His twelve disciples to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, He told them to stay in each city in the home of someone who was quote, worthy in it. A couple of verses later, we see what he meant by that word worthy. He said, whoever does not receive you nor hear your words as you go out of that house or out of that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. The one who is worthy is the one who receives you and heeds your words. During His earthly ministry, there were many people who were healed and fed by Jesus who bailed out and went their own way as soon as He started talking about Himself as the one and only source of life 
and the one and only way of access to the Father. Just follow the progression of events in John chapter 6 from beginning to end. You'll see a great example of that. When people receive your compassion but, but flatly reject your proclamation of Christ, move on. But when people receive your compassion and are willing to hear your proclamation of Christ, even if reluctantly, keep loving them. Keep speaking the truth to them. Keep pointing them to, word of, to the Word of God. Pray a lot. Be loving and compassionate. Be patient and forbearing. Wait on the Lord. And remain faithful. Now what will happen if we do those things that we're supposed to do? Well, a couple of things. First, we will be accused of participating in sin. In the passage that I read at the beginning of this message, that's what Jesus was accused of. Why does this man eat with tax gatherers and sinners? I always wanted to put a line in there that says because he didn't want to eat alone. If you start intentionally reaching out to people who are struggling with same-sex attraction or to people who are actually in the midst of homosexual relationships, you can count on this. Some people, some religious people, will accuse you of condoning sin. If they don't accuse you to your face, they will happily accuse you behind your back. There's a little verse that Christians love to rip out of context and misapply. It's 1 Thessalonians 5.22. It says, abstain from every form of evil. It's amazing how often believers who don't even own a King James version of the Bible quote the King James rendering of that verse. Abstain from all appearance of evil. I love the King James. It's a great translation. But what it means by that word is not what people make it mean. How many times have you heard that verse quoted to make the point that you had better never do anything that might give the appearance that you're condoning sin or taking sin lightly. Regardless of whether you're actually doing either. What that verse means is whatever form real evil takes, stay away from it. Abstain from it. And it's in a context that's talking about carefully examining prophetic utterances and identifying those that are not of God. The verse has very little to do, I'd say it has nothing to do with most of the situations to which Christians apply it. Think about this. When it came to outward forms of things, to things that appeared to be something that they were not, what did Jesus very stridently command men to abstain from? The appearance of evil where no real evil existed? No. When it came to appearances that contradicted reality, what made Jesus righteously indignant was not some phony appearance of real evil. It was every phony appearance of real righteousness. Jesus didn't rebuke behaviors that looked evil and weren't. He railed against behaviors that looked righteous and weren't. Behaviors like blowing a trumpet to gather a crowd just before you give money to a lame beggar and then going home and refusing to provide for your own elderly father and mother because you tell them that everything that you have is dedicated to the Lord. Things like praying loudly in a public place while you have little or no experience at praying in tears in your own bedroom. See, it's easy to do things that people will interpret as holy. As P.T. Barnum said, there's a sucker born every minute. What's challenging is to do things that God calls holy. You'd be very hard-pressed to find a scenario in which Jesus ever based His behavior on what religious people thought of Him. He had an audience of one. The one who sent Him. And the same is ultimately true of you and me. We have an audience of one. The one who saved us and sends us into this world to represent Him. And He's the one who said to Simon the Pharisee in Matthew 9, go and learn what this means. <laughs> you remember last week when Sam Appleby talked about how to jab a Pharisee? You know, how, how, you know the idea that Jesus said, you want to know what 
God intends for marriage. Have you heard of Genesis 1? Right? That's what this wording is like. Jesus is saying to, the, to a Pharisee who's challenging him. <laughs> and by the way, the Pharisee's challenge wasn't spoken. It was in his mind and Jesus heard it. Jesus says to him, go and learn this. God desires compassion and not sacrifice. Ceremonial sacrifice is easy. You don't have to have your heart in it at all to do it. But compassion is compassion. Our God, whose first declared attribute in Exodus 34 is His compassion, instructs us as His redeemed image bearers and agents to lead with compassion as we represent Him to lost men and to each other. He doesn't care at all about external piety. He never has. He cares about hearts that are like His heart. You know what happens to our ministry when we worry about externals, about appearances, rather than hearts of compassion for the souls of lost men? We trash the Gospel itself, whether we intend to or not. Just read Galatians 2. We'll be looking at that passage in a few weeks during our upcoming study of that great letter. No less than Peter and Barnabas were accused by Paul of not being straightforward about the gospel of Jesus Christ because they were too worried about appearances in the eyes of religious people. When we occupy ourselves with avoiding every outward appearance of evil, what we end up avoiding is every true form of ministry. If self-righteous people, including those in the community of God's people, never accuse you of associating with men and women with whom you should have nothing to do, then you're not following Christ's example because He was regularly accused of keeping the wrong company. Why did He do such things? He did such things and met with such people so that He could get up close and personal with sinners who needed to be saved. If we do what we're supposed to, if we actually act as the friend of sinners acted, we're going to rub some religious people the wrong way. But that's fine. That's God's problem. I thought about talking here about some specific scenarios about how we respond or deal with certain circumstances. Like, how do I respond when a coworker asks me to attend her same-sex wedding? Or is it actually okay for me to have an openly homosexual couple over to my house for dinner? But I realized that it would be way too easy for me to usurp the place of the Holy Spirit if I tried to give you answers to specific scenarios. And if you're disappointed with that, hear me out. What I will ask you to do is prayerfully consider why you do whatever you choose to do in those scenarios. Because that's the real question. If you go to that wedding, is it to show godly compassion to sinners while also proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners? If you're only willing to do one of those two things, you're pulling your punches. If you can only do one of those two things in the near term, you'd better be prayerfully considering how to add the other one in the long term. Should God make it possible to do so? Because the assignment is to do both. If you're doing what you are called to do, you'll be accused of wrongdoing by both religious people and pagans, so don't let that drive your decision. But do both parts of the assignment. Another thing that will happen if we do what we're supposed to do is that we'll be giving up a whole lot of control. <laughs> our time and our emotional savings accounts will be emptied out at times. Maybe our wallets as well. Got to be careful with that one because throwing money at need often backfires. But whatever it is that God requires, whatever it is that God takes from us, in order to meet the needs of those that He sets before us is no loss to us. It's no loss to us. 
Our God is an overflowing fountain. We don't run out of resource. A third and final thing that will happen if we do what we're supposed to be doing is that God will use us powerfully in the lives of people who need our Savior. He will love men and women into His kingdom through us. What a deal. He will make His Son beautiful to lost people through us. He'll take small acts of kindness and compassion and make them look like big piles of treasure to hurting people. He will take verses and passages that we share from His Word and He'll use them as light and life to pierce through the darkness in the hearts of those who, like us, were born blind. He will break down walls of bitterness and depression and pride and pain, and He will give resurrection life where there was no life before. That's what God does through us when we do what we're supposed to do. Dear Father, I pray with all my heart that we might be that people, both individually and as a church, Lord, that You'd show us day by day how to behave as those who love You so completely with such obsession that we simply cannot resist bringing You to other people who need You desperately. I pray, Lord, that You would break us of all protection of our comforts, that the whole notion of comfort zones would vanish. You put us on this earth, Lord, to share in the sufferings of Christ in order to expand Christ's kingdom so that we will have more people with us on glorification day. Use us, Lord, in the lives of those who need You, no matter what they look like. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.